The Apostle Paul noted in his letter to the Corinthians that the church can and should uh, rejoice together and also mourn together. Um, but as Americans, and especially as Texans, we hate to grieve. Um, it feels powerless to us. It feels weak. Um, we have a strong drive to fix or to blame, not to accept. We really hate mourning. We prefer anger. Anger is the anesthetic for pain. Um, so often when, when we feel grief or hurt or pain, our, our natural tendency, the, the flesh, tells us that feels weak or foolish, so what we need to do is, is embrace anger instead. So we don't want to hurt. That's an, and anger is an anesthetic to our hurt. So I want to encourage you this week, many of us are hurting, are mourning, are grieving. Um, we lost one of our own. Um, this week, Don Barron uh, passed away on Thursday. Now, you, you either uh, know Don Barron or you probably, if you've come to this church more than once, you've experienced Don Barron. Um, Don left a legacy of decades of ministry in various churches and other different opportunities. He was a smiling face and a kind word and a huge handshake with that massive bear paw that he stuck out there to greet you with, or if you were one of the ones who he felt like it was okay to hug, that he hugged. Um, and um, he was a blessing to all of us, and we were a blessing to he and Ananel for years. Um, and now we grieve with that family, um, and we grieve as a family. And any time, any time there's tragedy that involves a church, um, there's going to be a ripple effect immediately of different narratives and messages that go out. Um, because people are looking for an answer, and they're looking for an explanation, and they're looking for whatever that it is that we as humans look for desperately when we're confused or upset or hurting. Um, and not every set of ears in a church service is prepared to carry the burden of such a loss. So this isn't the right place to talk in detail. But I passionately believe that the truth is what sets us free. So we want to honor you as a church um, who had been a blessing for years to the barons, and to honor them as people who've been such a blessing to all of us in so many ways. Um, so this afternoon, and we're going to gather together as a church for anyone who would like to. Um, this isn't the memorial service. That's um, that the celebration of life is on Wednesday. Um, you can see those. Those are both going to be hosted in here. Um, I suspect standing room only does not begin to express the conditions we will be in on Wednesday morning. Uh, but this is where the family wanted to do it, is here. Um, and so we'll pack in and celebrate and visit with them um, on Wednesday morning. This afternoon, what I want to do is have a conversation for anybody who feels um, like that would be valuable to you. Um, we want to talk about the love we had for each other, how we loved each other so well. I want to engage with any questions, concerns, um, etc. that you may have um, about what you've heard or what you're hearing or, or whatever. This is, that's what that time is for. Um, we'll also have a time as we, as we discuss some of the meaning of some of this and how to get help if you're facing challenges with this and even how to talk with kids about some of these issues of death and these challenges. And, uh, and in fact, there will be several people here who have said they will be happy to stay behind afterwards and talk with people or debrief that um, or whatever conversations and questions as well. Um, 
So we, we have been through this process as a church staff and leadership carefully, gently waiting on the family to guide us um, through the conversation. At first, they asked for no communication. The email that went out to the church, again, some of you are very involved with, with Don and knew Don well. Some of you don't at all, and that's totally fine. Um, but for those who did, that's what this afternoon is a conversation for. We were told initially, hey, it'd be great for us to not have much communication, which I think we can all imagine and understand easily enough. However, they just recently reached out and said, actually, Anel um, is really blessed and encouraged by people reaching out now. She's ready. So if you know Anel well and you want to reach out to her in some way, um, she is welcoming that. Um, also, if you would like to leave a note, um, we've got some notes in the back and a couple of baskets to drop uh, notes in there. For those of you who've experienced loss and grief, you know how valuable those notes can be down the road. Um, can they just solid gold? And so if you would like to do that, you can do that as well at any point in the service. If you want to go grab a card and fill it out and drop it out, drop it off as you go, or you can leave one here at the church anytime and we'll get it to them as well. Um, so there are cards and notes and stuff like that back there. So I want to pray for us um, and for them as we all um, grieve and mourn together. Um, so please join me in that. Father, we come before you as a God who loves to give comfort. Um, Father, we are mourning and grieving, and I pray that you would help us remember that we don't mourn like pagans do. And we don't grieve like people who have no hope. And I firmly believe that there will be a day in your new Jerusalem sitting around the table, the banquet table, at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we'll be reunited with Don and all the others who we've lost over the years in this place that's not our home. Uh, this is a place that is amazing and has incredible miracles and obviously just, just some fantastic experiences that you've given us. And yet at the same time, it's always tainted with the brokenness of sorrow and grief and mourning and death. And Lord, I pray that we'll be reminded to accept the comfort from you and the comfort from each other. I pray that you'll help us to avoid the tendencies in our flesh that we look to to comfort us when we're hurting. And Lord, I, I pray that instead we'll be able to look to you, to fall on you, to come close to you, to put our face in your neck and let you hold us closely. And I pray that you would comfort us with your comfort, with the power of your spirit and with the power of your people. I, pray that, I thank you that we can be here together to mourn together and to celebrate together. And I pray for the barons that you would walk them carefully through this entire time of grief and loss. Um, and I pray that we can celebrate someday together, again, reunited. Lord, I thank you that you are a father. We pray these things according to your perfect knowledge, you who love to give good gifts and who love to comfort. Through the comforting work of your Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and according to the perfect grace of your Son, who came and suffered and died so that we could live forever. We give you great thanks and praise in all of this, according to his name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to jump into 1 Samuel. It's been several weeks um, that we've not been walking directly through uh, a book, and, uh, which is typically how we do things here. And that's usually what we do, but it's been a few weeks since we finished 2 Peter. Before that, we had walked through 1 Peter. Before that, Daniel. And before that, Judges. Before that, John and Mark and Ruth and several others that have been mixed in there as well. 
Um, and that's what we do. So you'll know at every level in our Bible studies, our children's ministry program goes through every book of the Bible. If a child is, is in our children's ministry all the way through, then they experience and discuss every single book of the Bible um, before they get out of that time. This God's Word is what we look to, to trust in. We, we don't trust in ourselves, and we don't trust in other people, and we don't trust in an organization or an entity. We only trust in the person of God and the way He's revealed Himself through His Word. <clears throat> um, however, as excited as I am to jump in, and even to move quickly, which you know is unlikely um, as we jump into 1 Samuel, it's not going to be quick at first, because there are so many things in 1 Samuel that would be common knowledge to the original readers and to the people who experienced it, and they are nothing like common knowledge to us. For example, today I'm hopefully we'll get to a place where I can begin to unpack what the tabernacle is, which is the setting of the beginning of this book of 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel is a series of narrative accounts from about the year 1000 BC. So 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, in other words, 3,000 years ago, a foreign land, the foreign culture, and a foreign language separated by three millennia. There's a lot going on here that's going to be difficult for us and challenging for us. It's the account of the transition of Israel from rival and sometimes warring tribes, typically under the power of another nation, into a kingdom, a kingdom that can defend itself and defeat its enemies. It includes several of the most interesting people and some of the most troubling accounts anywhere in ancient literature, including Holy Scripture. Here we will see God speak to a servant child instead of his own high priest. Um, we will meet one of the most troubled leaders in all of human history. Here we will meet someone described as, quote, a man after God's own heart. Here we will see a spirit called back from the dead. And here there be giants. Alistair Begg points out that as hard as this book is to study, it is also filled with accounts that can hold the complete attention of any child. You remember when we went through Judges? Some of you remember going through Judges. It was truly awful. It was, it was one of the hardest things that I've ever worked my way through. I felt like if you go back and watch them, it's amazing how many Sundays I start by saying, I'm so sorry that we have to look at this today. <clears throat> the tribes were broken and warring with one another. The tribes were in the process of creating their own gods and their own religions. These are God's people. <clears throat> and they decided they had better ways to do things. People were not safe even inside their own walled cities. The level of horror and evil that we ran into page after page. The, the book of Judges is a powerful warning against the idea of everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And yet isn't that exactly still our tendency? We face trouble, we face trauma, we face confusion, and what do we do? We immediately start unpacking what feels right in the moment. You know, what I, I, you know what I think? I think this. And what I think the Bible would tell us is, you may need to rethink. You may need to go back to the beginning and question whether or not your thinking is more anything more than just your thinking. <clears throat> it's an amazing picture. There was no king over Israel. And so the, every, not only just every tribe, but every person did whatever they thought was right. And they, had, they lacked, worse than not having a king, they refused to follow the God who was their monarch, who was their king. Now, we went through Judges. There's some noble and even admirable and righteous people who we run into. Think about Ruth or Boaz. Think about Deborah 
and there are several others, overall, though, we learned in the book of Judges to deconstruct our faith in humanity. Again, I want to really encourage you, if you have not yet deconstructed your faith in humanity, it is high time. <clears throat> there are no humans that you can utterly place your faith in. The experiences of everyday life should have taught you this by now. It boggles my mind that as I watch a culture in the media, in, the, in literature, in, in anything they write, and they keep saying more and more, no, what we need to do is just trust ourselves more. We just need to, tr you need to trust yourself as an individual more. You need to stop listening to any other voices and only listen to your voice. I, every time I hear that, I think, have you ever met a human? Like, is this just, this whole thing is new to you? You don't, you've not understood how little faith you can trust a place in us? You've never looked internally and seen what all is broken in you? You, you, you still have this idea that, oh, sure, this, this looks like a good idea. I can trust in myself. I can pray to me. It's, it boggles my mind. It, it is insanity that we would still be tempted. And we're still, time after time after time, shocked when humans let us down. <clears throat> Why? Why is that still shocking to us? It's a, it's, if, if you were nine, okay, maybe that would be understandable. If you're nine and you're still surprised when humans, probably at nine, you're not surprised by it because you're watching your parents like, yeah, they let me down again. But it is a, <laughs> but you, you, but why we would still not have that, ex I don't get it. Like judges, by the way, 1 Samuel is not going to cure you of this. It's not going to help. If you're thinking, oh good, finally some stories about how excellent humans can be. Yeah, don't, mm -mm. don't get set up like that. There are some great stories of some great people. We're going to unpack it. But like Judges, Samuel is a compilation of the historical events that reveals God's work among his chosen people, no matter how broken they are. So much of Judges and Samuel only makes sense when you understand the way the tribes interacted. So just very quickly, I'm not going to go into detail with this, but I want us to be able to wrap our brains correctly around the idea of these 12 tribes. We get into, we're, we're coming out of the book of Judges, and there's actually only 11 tribes and some change. One tribe has already been slaughtered down to just several hundred people. There's just a few of them left in total. And this, is gonna, this kind of stuff continues to happen. But it's hard for us, maybe for the young people in the room, if you think in terms of like clash of clans, maybe that'll help you, okay? <laughs> for the young people in the room, people that are constantly warring with each, for the older people, you're like, what is he talking about? Except for those of you like me who get caught up in your kids' app games and then they get bored with them and they quit playing them and three years later, I'm still playing the dumb <laughs> game because I'm apparently more obsessed than they are. So, so <clears throat> that's, but when we think about the great uniters, the great human uniters that we've run into, um, some of you may be familiar with Lawrence of Arabia. So for example, uh, T.E. Lawrence, um, who united a British soldier who united the Arabian nomadic clans in an uprising against the Turks. If you ever watched the movie or read a biography or anything like that, it's amazing when you see these clans who are fighting each other and killing each other finally get united under a leader who then leads them. Um, nearer to home is a guy named Crazy Horse, um, one of my uh, historical heroes, a guy named Crazy Horse, who um, we, I read a biography uh, of his out loud to Ginger. He was, a, uh, Lakota he was a, one of the leaders of the Lakota tribes, and he united the tribes against the U.S. Federal Army. Only for a very short time, though, for one or two battles, and then the people once again broke up into their tribes. This is the natural tendency of humans is to divide. We divide ourselves. 
It's, it's, it's fascinating that we do that. It really doesn't make a ton of sense how much we do that and how badly we do that. But once again, when you're looking at Scripture and you're looking at Ephesians 2 and 3, for example, or many other passages that talk about how Christ has called us to be united, and then you look out at the world going, the world recognizes we have a division problem. Yes? They talk about it a lot. There's a lot of division problems. There's ethnic division problems and, re- and racial division problems and, and, and religious, relig- all these different division problems. And literally you watch the world go, you know what we ought to do about this is we ought to divide up more. We ought to draw more delineations between these different groups. That should cure it. Yeah, that's, that ought to work. Let's just apply as much division as we can. That should solve our division problems. Whereas in Christianity, we have this image. And when we see humans try it, it works and then it falls apart over and over again. Um, and our, because of uh, the nature of how much uh, we, especially as Texans, love these stories, um, we love the account of William Wallace uniting the tribes, right? That's his, that's his uh, the, 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 the idea of William Wallace and, and much more importantly, Robert the Bruce, um, bringing these warring uh, clans and tribes of Scotsmen together to fight against the English monarchy. Now, just as a side note, uh, it, it didn't happen the way it happened in the movie. Um, that's, that's actually not, in fact, y- y- y'all know that Braveheart is referred to as the least historical, historical movie of all times. <laughs> For example, these two people probably never met uh, in reality. Um, so, but it's okay, made a good movie. Um, maybe, maybe the one we should focus on is this guy, a guy named George Washington, who took 13 different states who did not get along, who did not agree, who were not on the same page, who often kind of hated each other's guts, and he united them at least long enough to fight against, again, the British. The British are the great uniters. Uh, people unite against them all the time. Um, and so this, this idea of bringing them together, this is a fascinating idea that, that, of, of uniting this. But how hard it was for him and a handful of other people to unite these 13 colonies, these 13 states. In fact, it wasn't until after the Civil War, you may not know this, but that the United States were referred to in the plural. The United States are. Um, because that's what it was. As the name implies, it was a bunch of states that happened to be united. We now, we now, since the Civil War, we say the United States is because we think of it as a single entity. That's the amount of unification that happened under Washington all the way through Lincoln until eventually there was, now the United States is. It hasn't held on that long. And we're seeing, again, cracks of division at very deep levels because humans don't do that unity thing well except in Christ. And even then we mess it up. But this is, a, this is a huge picture we're going to see coming out through this book. <clears throat> this is a similar time in the ancient history of Israel, 3,000 years ago. Arguably one of the most epic examples of a leader who's able to unite a people who less than a generation before were slaughtering each other. We're going to get to see his story. God's intention is for the people of Israel to be united under his direct leadership, though. That's his plan. They have a theocracy, not a monarchy. They're a nation of priests, not peasants. They don't need a king or an emperor. They just need a high priest. They just need someone to represent them to the God who is their direct ruler. That's exactly the plan that God had in place for his people. This is the end of an era of judges, and by the time we end 2 Samuel, we'll be in what historians refer to as Israel's, quote, golden age. But don't worry. It won't last long. In the Hebrew Scriptures, for example, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings were a single series. 
It's actually all four of them. In fact, it was published in sometimes in Hebrew history as first and second and third and fourth kingdoms. That's how it was put together at some time. It's literally the rise and fall of the Israeli kingdom, of the Jewish kingdom, is what these four books together are all about. Is the unification of the kingdom and then the disintegration of the kingdom. And of course, the story of Israel is a microcosm of this human story because we see this same pattern over and over again all through Scripture and all through human history. God reaches out and creates a way for mankind to know Him. Whoever represents mankind pretty much immediately messes that up. God then creates a new connection, a new point. This is the, the song of Scripture, is this song. We, God invites us into a relationship with Him. We mess that up. We distance ourselves, and He reaches out again. And this, happens, this pattern happens over and over again. In 1 Samuel, um, sometimes we, we will miss the, the lines, but we will catch the chorus. The melody will continue, and it's easy for us to miss because it's a narrative. I'm going to explain that in a second. I put out this example. This is us as humans. It's natural for us. Um, we, we, I put it on a Facebook challenge. Some of you responded to it. What are some songs that everyone knows the chorus, but no one knows the lines to the rest of the song? That no one knows the chorus. And I got a fantastic list, by the way. I didn't get a chance to look at it till this morning. Um, and so I could never, I mean, there were dozens, maybe hundreds listed there. Um, this, was a, this was a hit. This was something that y'all connected with, apparently, this Facebook channel. So here's here, what I think probably gets first place and got a lot of mentions was Sweet Caroline. And, and I think that's because the truth is all of us only know three words to Sweet Caroline, and that is bump, bump, bump. Like that's, a, that's it. That's all we know to three, Sweet Caroline. And everyone knows exactly when to do that. Other, other honorable mentions, Louie, Louie, Another One Bites the Dust, Danger Zone. Again, every one of these, especially, and I was amazed how many of these were like 80s <laughs> songs, but because that's when good music was written. But the, the, uh, uh, but how often of these, like, again, when someone said it, I didn't start singing it in my head at the beginning of the song. I started singing in my head at the chorus because, again, that's all I know. Um, La Bamba probably deserves second place because everybody can do that one. Piano Man got a lot of hits. Uh, which I didn't know because I know all the words of piano man. Um, but as a Texan, I've always thought Cotton Eye Joe was funny that it made the list. Like, yep, I did not know that it had words. Um, I, only, I only know the one word. There was a fantastic list that was listed there, a whole bunch of them. Um, and this is apparently something about our brain that we see these choruses repeat themselves and we connect with them. And so I would encourage you as we're going through Samuel, look for this chorus to repeat itself. God reaches out and mankind messes it up, and so God reaches out. Like, this is, this is the pattern that we see, and it's the song of Scripture, and the chorus is hit several times in 1 Samuel that we can get it. So in order to dive into 1 Samuel, we need to do a little bit of background work today. So I'm going to do as much as I can, but again, I'm warning you, at the beginning especially, it is going to go a little slow because we're going to run into several things that are quite uh, shocking to us or that are just we read it, and we read the Ark of the Covenant, and then we just keep going, and we really don't need to keep going when we hit a line like that. We need to unpack what actually is the Ark, and why was it there. So here's an important question with, in regards to 1 Samuel. Who wrote it? And disappointingly, the answer is going to be, no one knows for sure. 
Um, Samuel, obviously, is traditionally considered a main author, and there's certain passages that only could come from him because he was the only one there when it happened. But the idea of understanding Samuel as the only author of First and Second Samuel makes no sense, given that Samuel dies in First Samuel chapter 25. So it seems unlikely he wrote any of this stuff after that, right? So we get this, but we know he was one of the writers, because in 1 Samuel 10, 25, it says this. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. So we know that Samuel is one of the authors of at least the material that's used here, and it's fair to say that the stuff, especially early on, had to have come from him. But we have another couple, another couple named people who we know were part of the writing. We see them referenced in 1 Chronicles 29, 29. Um, their names are Gad, who is a, a seer, or a, a, like similar to a prophet, and Nathan the prophet, who is the one who confronts David. Um, verse 29 says, Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer. Okay, that's what we're studying, the first of those. And in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. So we have three different people playing these roles, and probably what we're talking about is that at some point in Jewish history, these stories that were told and told and told were eventually compiled and written down. In fact, there's reason to, to believe that, especially true of 1 Samuel, because, for example, in 1 Samuel 27, 6, we get this passage. So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, that, that may, you may be like, what? I don't understand how that plays into it. Well, this event happened after the rule of Solomon. And so, for very likely, what we have is, so Solomon's going to be several kings down the line here, is that very likely what happened is, you have these various chronicles, Gad's chronicle, Samuel's chronicle, um, Nathan's chronicle, the writings they have of the times of King David and maybe even the judges. And then sometime after Samuel, someone, some other prophets and seers took all those different messages and compiled them together into this four-part series that we call 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings, and put that kind of stuff, and they were all compiled together at some point down the road. And then the kings were compiled, those stories were compiled later and added on. Now that may trouble you, it shouldn't in any way trouble you. Uh, this is how that was done. It was, it was passed along verbally and, and orally for a long period of time, and then eventually compiled and written down um, once, once the stories are able to get together. And this may explain some of the issues we run into in 1 Samuel, um, but uh, don't let it trouble you. But it, but it may offer up some insight in some of the strange things we run into in 1 Samuel. Like, for example, a reference to something in the middle of 1 Samuel that doesn't happen until after the kingship of Solomon. Well, that probably explains that. That's when it was written down, and someone was like, wow, and this is still true to this day when they wrote it down, which makes sense. But so there are things that are out of order in 1 Samuel that are really can be troubling at times. You read it, and you're like, wait, but that happened first. How does that? And we don't like this, by the way. We as Americans, as Westerners, we don't like the way Jewish people wrote narratives like this um, because they, they emphasize the message and the truth over sometimes the narrative and the order um, and sometimes even the facts. Um, there are phrases thrown in that really trouble us. We're going to run into some stuff that you're just reading along through 1 Samuel, and it's a great account, and the narration is awesome, and you really get into it, and then it's like someone does that record scratch all the way across something, and you get there, and you're like, whoa, whoa, what does that mean? And, there, and we'll unpack those. Maybe one of the hardest things is when you have the same event told from various angles. It's like the Gospels. 
that you read through all four Gospels, and they'll tell the same account, but they tell it from four different directions. And it's the same story that's troubling. Again, sometimes it's troubling us. It shouldn't be. That makes total sense. But it helps us make sense if we understand that we may be seeing the same event from the perspective of Gad, Nathan, and Samuel, for example. A great example that we'll run into and discuss, as you're reading through 1 Samuel on your own, which I highly recommend, here's a question I have for you. See if you can figure out when Saul and David met for the first time. Good luck with that. It's really tough um, because it's not, it, it seems like three different times they met for the first time. Um, and so uh, it's confusing for us. But that may be explained by three different authors um, telling the first account they knew of them meeting. <clears throat> Which one is actually first, we may or may not know. So here's the history up to this point, very quickly. God created humans and placed them in a garden. There we go. God creates something. He reaches out. He offers the relationship with him. They rebelled against him. I don't know how long it took, but they rebelled against him. God then gave them a family. The family has a little bit of internal conflict. One brother murders the other. This pattern continues through him choosing a family line that displays one dysfunction after another. Understand that when we talk about joining a dysfunctional family in the church, that doesn't set us apart from God's people. That's one of the defining traits of God's people, is that they are dysfunctional. That's why they know they need a Savior. It's what sets us apart isn't that we're messed up. What sets us apart is that we're aware that we're messed up and we know we need outside help. And we turn to Christ to be that outside help. So this is, this is the reality of it. Eventually, some of those brothers sell other brothers into slavery, sell another brother into slavery. But then God blesses them in Egypt and gives them a position, but actually, eventually, the Egyptians enslave them as well. Through a series of amazing plagues, God sets them free. The people of Israel had now left Egypt. God had guided them to a mountain, to a special mountain out in the desert. At that mountain, God meets them personally. And in fact, the passage, some many, many people believe that the passage is meant to indicate that God's original intention was for all the people to come up onto the mountain with him. That his initial invitation was, I want my people to come up on my mountain with me. And the people go, you know, we just saw what you did to the Egyptians when they upset you. And we're worried that we may upset you too. In fact, we think it's likely we're going to upset you, and we just assume not be on the receiving end of you being upset. So, Moses, you go talk to God. We'll just send up Moses and let Moses talk to God. And that seems to be sort of the picture that happens, that, that the, the sons of Aaron go up, and then Moses goes all the way up, and they invite him, he invites him into a special relationship with him. Meanwhile, the people form a golden calf and begin to worship it. They were dead right. They knew themselves well enough to know, we're, listen, don't trust us, just leave us down here to ourselves, but don't let it, and so they made the huge mistake. They were afraid, here's what's interesting, and rightfully so. The term God breaks out against his enemies, that language, God breaking out, is the implication even of, as we talk about a tabernacle, that sometimes God is offended enough against his holiness that he breaks out. And when he breaks out, bad things happen to people. People who offend his uh, holiness are at risk. This is one of the truths that we're going to see in 1 Samuel again. When you offend the holiness of God, when I offend the holiness of God, when they offended the holiness of God, they are placing themselves at risk. And in fact, sometimes they paid, and sometimes big time. When we think about that when the tabernacle is first set up, and God creates this beautiful plan for how he can abide safely, it can be safe for his people for him to abide right there in his midst. Listen, we're going to put up a curtain, we're going to put up a tent, 
That's going to be the representation of my holiness. I am a holy God everywhere. I exist everywhere, but I'm going to set up this tent right in the midst of the people. This is going to represent my holiness. You treat it as sacred, and things are going to go okay. He sets this rule up. It sounds awesome. It sounds beautiful. It's poetic when you read it. It's all good news. There's a giant celebration. The people are so excited. The God of the universe is going to abide with us, and he's going to let us be his people this is amazing. Okay, Aaron's sons, you guys go in and worship the way he said to do so. And Aaron's sons go in and they go, you know what? We've had some really cool, innovative ideas for how we think we ought to worship you. So we're going to do those instead. The first two guys in their first mission into the tabernacle to worship God offend him by their pride and they are struck dead. There's the story. Again, you see the chorus, you hear the chorus. There's the story again. God creates this awesome plan. Man messes it up in our pride. God then begins to create a new plan. Okay, here's how we're going to do it moving forward. This is the plan. This is the cycle. The people of Egypt, the people of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, they had gods. If you had asked them, they would have said, this is Marduk. He is our God. The Jewish people didn't talk that way. They said, this is Yahweh. We are his people. They didn't make him God. They didn't declare him God. They don't have anything to do with whether or not he is God. He has chosen them as his people, and they understand that. He is still a holy and mighty and righteous God. Now, none of this, none of this, by the way, diminishes that he is merciful and loving and graceful. Like, none of those are diminished. It's hard for us as humans to fully understand those things integrated. There's some relationships that we can have that can show that. Um, it's intriguing, and we need that. Um, you guys, some of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia. Every time I read this concept, think about this concept of God, I am returned to the conversation with the children, with the beaver family in their little home before they meet Aslan. And at one point, one of the children says, well, well Aslan, this Aslan character, is he safe? And, and Mr. Beaver says, safe? I just told you he's a lion. Isn't isn't that such an important thing to understand? The defining character trait of lion is not safe. This is what he is. He is not safe. He's a lion. The beaver makes it clear, but he is good. I'm intrigued every once in a while when a lost person or a person lost in the world catches a hint of wisdom. And we see that periodically. The truth is the truth no matter who comes across it, right? All truth is God's truth. And we have this guy named Jordan Peterson who is trying really hard to find truth. And he's trying to do it without God, but he keeps being drawn back into God as far as the source of it. So it's fascinating to hear somebody work really hard to unpack wisdom without giving any credit to God. And, he's, and he ends up doing it anyway. It's really fascinating. Anyway, um, not to push him too hard. But this, what's fascinating is he's, he's realized, for example, that we need representations of this in our lives. We need fathers who are people who could break us. They're not safe. But we know they won't because they're good. But we, we need that. Women and children in particular need to experience the idea of there's a man in my life who could destroy everything around us. That's one side. But we also then need to have the absolute confidence that he never would turn against us. Once kids have that picture, it helps them in their narrative of understanding a God who is loving and graceful and merciful and holy, and who stands by the law. It's a, it's a cool picture that many of us don't have. Many of you don't have that. You don't have that intuition because of the examples of dads 
and other men in your life that you've seen reckless anger or out-of-control rage or passivity or any of the other options that are out there. We forget to think of God as mighty and holy and high and lifted up sometimes. We sometimes forget that it's a crime against God to fail to face and seriously and take sin seriously. So let me real quickly unpack this idea of the tabernacle just to give you some very, some very quick basics. Um, the establishment of the tabernacle, in Hebrew, the word tabernacle, the word that's usually used is mishkan, which just means a, a dwelling place. This is the tent of his presence. The tribe of Levi was chosen in place of the firstborn of Israel. They literally had a lottery of count, accounting or population counting where they said, here are all the firstborn sons of Israel, and here's the Levites. And it turned out there was more firstborn sons than Levites, so they had to make, do some accounting and eventually figure out the accounting, how much more has to be given to God in order to, for the Levites to replace the firstborn sons. There's a ton here we could unpack that we don't have time for. It'll come up probably later. The firstborn sons, and now replaced by the Levites, the, Le, the Levites' job was to clean and mend and transport and serve in the tabernacle. Meanwhile, the descendants of, the, of Aaron were chosen to serve as the priests in the tabernacle. The tabernacle entered into Canaan during the war against Canaan. The main camp of Israel was at Gilgal for, for a long time, and the tabernacle may have been erected there at first. We don't know for sure. Then the nation was divided among the tribes, and the tabernacle was moved to a place called Shiloh. In Israel, it's pronounced Shiloh, and so I may jump back and forth at times, but I'll try to stick with East Texas, Shiloh. Um, at the end of Joshua's life, the tabernacle is settled there in Shiloh, and it remained there for approximately 300 years. Very quickly, um, I want to show you what we're talking about just to give a sense of, of what it looked like. So we have the video, but I, I accidentally, this video is way too long. There we go. Walking across the desert. Can you freeze it actually right there? Go back to the... Yeah, so you see the desert. <clears throat> I could have done this better in between, but bam, you rock. Okay, so um, that's the tabernacle. This is an actual reconstruction that's in an actual location down in the deserts of Zin where the people of Israel wandered for 40 years. This isn't at Shiloh. There's not a reconstruction yet at Shiloh. Um, but this is what it would have looked like. And so if you've already pictured, if you've always pictured the people wandered in the wilderness and you pictured East Texas, stop that. No, no, it's, it's barren rock. It's like 700 degrees during the summer and, and the heat coming up off the stone is unthinkable. And there's a bit of what I showed in the first service until I remembered how long it was halfway through and was like, I wish I'd stopped this. So the, um, uh, was me walking over a hill and imagining what it would be like to have to walk there from the miles and miles away that people would have been to walk to this place. But the most shocking thing for us as Americans, as we drove in and we got out and we got out of the bus and we walked over the hill and we see it as all of us are like, that's it? We drove all the way for that? Like, where's the real wood? We thought it was to scale. No, no, that's to scale. The entire tent outline, the entire tent outline, I don't mean the tent, I mean the, the carpets that go around the edges are a little bit smaller than this room. The tent itself is only 45 feet by 15 feet. That's small. Um, some of you probably have living rooms bigger than that. It is... It is the, the holy area is 30 feet by 15 feet. That's where the menorah is. And that's where the... Um, keep, go, keep running the, the video now while I'm talking. 
Um, and so that's the, the, where the menorah is, and that's where the showbread is, and that's where um, uh, one of the, the basin for the incense is. That's where that is. But as you're walking through this desert, you would get there, and what I'm going to show by the time we get there in a second is walking all the way in, and then there being this, the altar where people would have burned this. So I'd have been hauling a sacrifice all the way there through the stone, um, through the desert, and laying that sacrifice there. That's all of it. Now here's what's wild. The Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, which we'll talk more about, was only 15 by 15. And that's tiny. This is where the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, this is where He focused His presence, was in this 15 by 15 area. And it was a, the, the most sacred spot on the entire planet. Right there. That's what the tabernacle was. That's what God set up. The instructions, if you're interested in it, the instructions for all of the details can be found in Exodus chapters 25 through 31 and then Exodus chapters 35 through 40. That's the entirety of the tabernacle. Certain aspects, the entire tabernacle was made entirely of skins and curtains and boards and posts because it had to be moved all the time. Aspects were wood overlaid with gold and silver, but again, for the most part, it's very plain. Meanwhile, Greek temples even ones from the similar era, are, could be several hundred feet long. They were hundreds and hundreds of feet long and hundreds of feet wide and tens of feet tall. Meanwhile, this simple tent was out in the middle of the desert. The new bread was placed every Sabbath. The seven lamps of the menorah were lit every evening. The altar of the incense was lit during times of worship. We'll talk more about the, uh, that. Now, it's important to understand that the tabernacle is not the temple. So if you can, jump over to the picture of the temple. So that set of tents is not the temple. The holy temple in Jerusalem, I think we have a picture of it. The holy temple in Jerusalem was a massive structure based on the same uh, magnification of the same concepts. Now inside of it was exactly, the very middle part was the same size. But everything else was this massive magnification of the tabernacle. When the tabernacle ends its existence, is soon after that is when the temple starts. We've run into Israel. People always get confused. They're like, wait, what is the where is the tabernacle? Where was the temple? And how do they... The tabernacle ran its course, ended, and then Solomon is going to build a temple. So the, the temple is the continuation of the tabernacle. Also confusing to people is this. The tabernacle is not a synagogue. I think we have a picture of a synagogue in the, in the photos as well. That's just a gathering place that every community had. That's more similar to a church, although it's also not interchangeable with church. Um, people will often confuse that as well. None of these are just like a church. I think we have a picture of me in the synagogue. So though someone would stand up front and read from Scripture and even teach from it, that doesn't make it, uh, it was not a church. It isn't the exact same thing. And they were not the same. This story, this account is going to be told in story mode, 1 Samuel is. Not textbook mode. Not law mode, not Proverbs mode. The theology and God himself is going to be introduced through story, through a narrative account. The theology is being unpacked through real life. We're going to run into the issues that we face in our real lives all the time with these real people. Anyone ever faced infertility? We're going to see that. Anyone ever run into issues of corruption in the clergy? Oh, yeah. Ever faced isolation or fear or pride? Is it hard sometimes to worship? Do you ever feel utterly defeated? Do you ever feel like God is being defeated in your culture? Anyone ever try to replace their faith walk with an activity? 
Try to replace your faith walk with a community. Try to replace your faith walk with popularity. Anyone have to deal with conflict between your two wives? Okay, maybe not that one. <laughs> um, the question is, how are we to know God as we experience these things? How are we to experience God as we face these types of issues, these real life, everyday human issues in our lives? How are we supposed to experience God in the midst of it? This book is going to unpack the right theology of God and mankind in narrative form and the accounts of these real life people. I'm going to encourage you to read and listen and watch closely. Here's a main one I don't want you to miss. So this is going to be our closing thought today. Stand with me, if you will. We're about to have a time of invitation as we do every week. And, and I don't, obviously, each of us is standing before God together, but also individually. What have you brought with you today? What hurt or pain or fear or confusion that came with you today? Um, conflict, um, whatever it happens to be that's in our hearts. Um, these type of things are challenging for us. And, but I think one of the lessons that we need to walk away from is unpacked here. If you, if you would like to come and pray up here for any reason, you are invited. Um, to do so here in a second. If you'd rather go over in the corner and pray with somebody over there or pray with one of us here, we would love to do that. Um, if you don't know this God, if you haven't met this God, that you don't know there's a God who loves to comfort and who loves to give good gifts and who is holy and high and lifted up and you've never gotten to, to meet this God, we would love to introduce you today. We'd love to have the opportunity to talk, that, talk through that with you. If you have been through our welcome home process and you're ready to be part of a dysfunctional family to hope that a community will help us mourn together and to comfort each other together and rejoice together. Um, I hope you'll come and let us know about that as well this morning. Whatever it is, however the Spirit guides you. But I want to close on God's words, these thoughts, as I turn it over um, for us to sing or respond as the Spirit leads. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than than your thoughts. Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The very words of God.